Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Today, we have artist and filmmaker Ivan Cash, who is a specialist at human connection. Ivan and I first met when I moved to San Francisco, and he invited me on a project of his, which involved illegally hanging up no tech zone signs that he had created, which were essentially signs that said, if you take your phone out in the park, you're going to be fined $100. He not only filmed the process, he also recorded people's reactions afterwards, just in case it went viral. But of course, his projects go viral because he designs them that way. And once it did, he then shared it with the news media a couple weeks later and said, hey, check this out. There's some anarchists going around putting up no tech zone signs all over San Francisco. Ivan is an accomplished speaker and storyteller. He's on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and he's been on pretty much every single major news publication at some point for some project. But what I really love most about him though is that he remains humble and he remains focused on the kind of art that he wants to create in the world, which is reminding people what makes us all human. To me, Ivan's superpower is his ability to find the extraordinary inside of the ordinary, which is why I wanted him on this podcast to share with you his perspectives, his work, as well as the different strategies that he uses in order to make sure that the work that he creates, which is so important, actually gets seen. Anyways, to start this conversation off, this is Ivan, and here he is explaining to me what connection means to him. I think what fascinates me about human connection is that when I have these moments of connection, it has the power to transcend day-to-day -day life, and it allows me and my interactions to create a new world with someone. Suddenly, we can be co-creators. It can't necessarily be pinned down, but when a connection is experienced or facilitated, I think that it's an inherent known feeling. It comes down to like presence, like making space for someone and also stepping into someone else's space. I think a lot of the most profound moments in a given person's lifetime come when it's not easy to put those experiences into words. It, it transcends the, the normal day-to-day -day predictable expected vocabulary. I really like that you use the word co-create because really this is the world that we live in, right? I mean, the fabric of society is essentially one big co-created universe. And if we don't retain the ability to see the other as human, then we totally lose the ability to move forward and to make progress together. So while the work that I do is really like activism, the work you do is cohesion. And that's arguably even more important. That being said, in a time of COVID-19, where people's faces are covered and we're not even able to meet in person, this is making your work even harder. I'm wondering, how have you managed to help facilitate connections either through the work that you do or the interactions that you have on a daily basis? I mean, with COVID, I was really inspired by this realization that so many people around the world were experiencing the same felt sense of isolation. And in that isolation, we're actually united. And so out of the gate, my buddy, Jacob Jonas, who's a choreographer, he and I did this project that invited people from all around the world to document their everyday mundane experience in quarantine. So we asked them to take a video of their face mask, them washing their hands or looking out their window or opening up their refrigerator. So that felt like a, an important project to do, going back to what we were talking about before, like the inspiration cycle. Like many people, I felt totally hopeless when COVID first hit and really scared and felt a sense of like despair. 
And part of doing that project was wanting to create a sense of, hey, it's okay, we're all in this together. But at the same time, like telling myself that. So I guess a lot of my work is self-soothing and self-therapy, where the process of creating the work is healing for me as well. Yeah, that was such a beautiful project. It was so cool to see people from 30 different countries coming together to collaborate on a project. And I mean, these collaborations are not easy. So I definitely want you to talk a little bit about your process and share how you went about creating this. But right before that, just so that everyone has a little bit of context, I'm gonna play a little bit of the video to give everyone an idea of, of just the sound part of the entire piece, which doesn't really capture the, the essence of it. I mean, you can't really share a video through sound, but it'll be a good teaser. Hello, my name is Zipong and I'm from China. Hi, I'm Luisa from Italy. My name is Marcel Ndiaye and I'm from France. I'm from Iran. I live in New York City. And I'm from Barcelona. And this is my cat, Louis. My name's James. I'm from Australia. I'm from Ghana. I'm from Brazil. I am from Malaysia. <laughs> and I'm from India. And the COVID-19 lockdown is making me feel pretty stressed out. I feel overwhelmed. Uncertain. Isolated. And I feel unbalanced. Powerless. Detached. Feeling a little bit anxious. From this point on in the piece, it evolves into this amazing cross-country dance from screen to screen to screen, and it's absolutely beautiful. So if you guys are intrigued enough to go and check it out, I think it'll give you this sort of wholesome feeling of humanity. Back to you, Ivan. Can you walk me through your process in terms of how you ensure that what you create is actually seen by people? Yeah, it's a great question. And for anyone creating anything, oftentimes the way that we measure success or impact is based on number of views or listens or press coverage. And this can be an important metric, but I just want to caveat that it's definitely not the only metric. And I've experienced this firsthand. It can be toxic to chase that external validation. That said, I have a lot of pride in the work that I've done reaching a, a large number of people. And it's also a huge part of the creative goal for a lot of the projects I do. So there's like probably three steps that I take to ensure that a project gets its reach and visibility. The first step would be choosing an original project or an original idea that I find really interesting and I hope that other people would find interesting as well. I have a lot of ideas, but I'm very particular with which one to pursue. In parallel, with doing the actual project. I'm also making a list of all of the publications like blog, Instagram page, news publication that might be interested and just getting ready to, to send something out. After the piece is finished, I am always interested in creating a really beautiful graphic or thumbnail. And then I'd say probably the most important thing is a really short write-up that is compelling. I, I tell a lot of people, if you can't explain your project or your idea in one sentence or less, it's too long. I'm a big believer in simplicity. And if, if, you're, if you want to do this on your own, I would implore everyone listening to go to the news sites or the media sites that you consume information through and just check out what the headlines are. And for me, I assigned this to some students a while back, but then also did it for myself. And some of them were like, woman creates perfume of armpit smell. Man changes into woman at Los Angeles airport. These strangers make out with each other after meeting for the first time. 
projects like that immediately invite viewers to lean in. And so I think that's important. Cool. So the three steps are basically choosing an original project that is interesting, making sure that it's easy for others to talk about it by providing them with the graphics or thumbnails, and finally, making sure what the headlines are. You know, when I think back to projects that I love that you've created, this one comes to mind, and I'm not even going to explain what it is. I'm just going to let the news anchor from ABC explain it for me. Some low-tech hackers are trying to change the definition of marriage by rewriting it or at least covering it up. A group called Hack Marriage has been going around bookstores and libraries, literally covering up the formal definition of marriage with a sticker of an amended one. Anonymous artists have been covering the usual dictionary definitions that define marriage as a union between a man and a woman, with one that says it's a union between two people. They can be seen walking into stores and libraries and going through each dictionary on the shelf. The activists say that by changing the definition, they hope they can influence legal arguments in the future. So if you break this down, it was an original idea, it was shareable, it was easy to explain to people. And you recorded the whole thing and seeded it to the news, right? That was essentially the ingredients to success applied in hack marriage. And probably the best part of it was that the Oxford Dictionary decided to officially change the wording itself at the end of the day, which is so amazing. I'm curious, though, how do you see the long-term impact of what you create playing out? Do you just create projects and put them out into the world and then wait to see what happens? Or do you want to be involved in the aftermath of what happens next? It depends on the project. I've had some projects that have gone on to have lives of their own. These days, I'm very interested in defined start times and end times for projects. In terms of what my hopes are for audiences that are coming across this work, the best answer I can give is thinking about times when I've been most inspired by art projects. I remember reading this book, Post Secret on my bed on some Saturday when I was in my early 20s. And for those that don't know about it, it's this project by Frank Warren where strangers all around the world will write a secret, their secret, and then send it to him on a postcard anonymously. And he publishes them on an ad-free blog. And I just remember feeling so reassured that my struggles or feelings that felt so distinct and felt so much like my own were actually this universal phenomenon. And so to go back to your question, my hope would be for someone that sees my work or encounters it to feel less alone and more hopeful and more motivated to to create their own work and to know that the world that we live in is created by a bunch of people just like us. That's great. Do do you consider yourself a marketer or an artist? I would not call myself a marketer. I guess it depends on the context that I meet someone, but I'd consider myself an artist and filmmaker. And to pay the bills, I have a creative studio that works with some of the biggest brands in the world to make campaigns or content that is a little more relatable and honest than a lot of what what we're used to seeing. Yeah, I've swayed between the two over the course of my career. I think I used to see myself as a marketer because it felt more compelling to get hired when you were able to put out all these marketing numbers. But I found that to be inaccurate over time because marketers just chase numbers, whereas I think artists actually chase the more intangible side of it, the feeling, the connection, the depth of the impact that you're trying to have rather than just the breath. So I'm, I'm relieved that you see yourself as an artist and filmmaker first and foremost. Yeah. And you're totally, and whatever you want to call yourself is fine, but you're totally an artist, my friend. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, and just to like riff on that for a second, I think we're both people that are totally mesmerized by the power of an idea and will chase that relentlessly to an extent that most people would find absurd. Would you agree with that? Mm, yeah, especially you. I, I feel like you're you're so your vision for some of these experiential projects you take on or installation works that require an army of people, and it's this thing that you become mesmerized by. I think I'm just an, I'm more of an idealist, so I I believe I, I keep having these ideas in my head that I I think the world needs to see and hear and feel, and so there's this belief that such things need to be created and need to be made real, even if no one else believes it. And the interesting thing is that by trying to bring an idea into existence, I have felt that you're proving it to not just yourself, but to others. And then more often than not, when they see it, they understand it. If you've done your job, do you feel like it's the same for you? Totally. I think it's recognizing opportunity and one of the first big projects I put out, snail mail my email, strangers transforming emails into handwritten letters and sending them out around the world. That's an idea that a lot of people, after I'd done the project, came up to me and said, hey, that I actually had that idea. I just never did it. And I believe them. And I, I think people like us is, we don't just stop at, oh, that'd be a cool idea. If no one else has done it, we're going to take this on and... It might not be practical. It might totally be idealistic. We could probably be making a lot more money working for a big oil company. But I, I come back to the, the quote by Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. And it's totally a cliche, but it's also what better way to live. I'm always chasing the power of, of a great idea. That's my drug more than anything. Some people drink coffee or smoke cigarettes. I love to chase ideas. And so... For instance, when Jacob told me about this sort of rough idea of having a dance performance in a vacant parking lot in Los Angeles where the cars would illuminate the dancers in a circle without hesitation, even though I had sworn off collaborating with him again, just because we're, we're both really intense, I couldn't say no. It was such a compelling idea that I knew not only that it should happen, but that it needed to be documented in a way that really did justice to it and that inspired people that couldn't be there to feel this sense of possibility. Going back to this idea of ideas, though, I think we all have ideas. And I'm not entirely convinced that you and I have more ideas and execute upon more ideas than the average person. We just execute the ones that most people say no to. Like for every idea, like for every successful idea, there's like a massive graveyard of unfulfilled ideas. And so totally. maybe the, the more interesting question that I would love to hear from you is what is your barometer for a good idea? Like what are the litmus tests that you apply in order to judge whether something is going to be worth your time, energy, and effort? It's a great question. I think at the end of the day, it's something that has to light a fire up. And I, I have to feel a certain energy from that, a certain level of enthusiasm, amptness. To be practical, when I'm assessing a given idea and deciding whether or not to take it on, I'm certainly looking at it in terms of who are the collaborators, what is our access to resources, what is the final output. What is the message of the project? What's the, the greater takeaway? Will I be learning something? Is this a, a challenge? I hate doing the same thing over and over again. I always want to be challenged. 
Will I feel proud of it? And to some extent, at this point, will it fit within the body of work that I want to do more of? This artist who I really respect named Jonathan Harris said in a talk years ago, you become known for doing what you do, which is obvious, but in a way, it's a reminder that if you want to be this amazing ballroom dancer, but all you do is hip hop all the time, then no one's going to just read your mind and hire you for a ballroom dancing job. You need to, you know, go out there and start ballroom dancing first. And it's an abstract analogy, but for me, realizing the area of work that I'm interested in and stuff that is inspiring and helps people in some way, shape, or form feel a little less alone or give some sense of having empathy for a cause or a person that they might not otherwise had for, for projects that don't fall under that, I'm less apt to take them on. So there's definitely steering of the ship that I do now and really wanting to make sure that any project checks the boxes. It's really interesting to hear you speak because you're so intentional, you're so tactical, you're like hyper-rational, yet the output of what you create is so genuine and whimsical and, and just feels so natural. Is this sort of duality of these two personas something that you've always had? Or is this discipline and intention something that you've carefully cultivated and curated over time? Yeah, the discipline has come over time. I can think back to projects I did earlier in my career that were totally unrelated. I did a project called Infographic of Infographics. Do you know about this, Ben? No, I don't. I studied 47 infographics and then made an infographic about the traits that those 47 infographics had. And you can do a Google search, anyone listening, infographic of infographics. For a while, it was number one on Google image search. Now it's really been demoted. But my learning in doing that project and having it really get a lot of traction at the time is that I probably received 50 emails over the years from people that wanted to hire me as an infographic artist. and. I had to tell each one of them that I didn't want to design infographics. And so that was a great teacher of, okay, I'm not going to do creative projects where I wouldn't want to do that again in some capacity. Yeah, I hear you. I have a similar problem. Every time a project is successful, I get people reaching out to me. So when I I tied models underwater, suddenly I was an underwater photographer and I'm like, I've done it once. It just was popular. (laughs) And so always having to be conscious of what you're putting out in the world in in the event that it becomes successful, it could be the greatest mistake of your life. (laughs) That that said, I do think there's a total risk of being overly dogmatic where someone is so structured and has such a great vetting system and filtering system that they don't allow themselves to rise to the occasion and follow some spontaneity and passion. And so, you know, I I say all of that, but I'm also totally guilty of taking on projects that don't fit my own criteria just because I'm excited about it. And sometimes at the end of it, I say, well, I might have checked all my boxes, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Always making sure to consider the circumstances of where you're at right here and what you need and being responsive to that. On that same note, then, now that you've done all of these different projects, films, and you've even done like Kickstarters, you've gone into like building glasses to get people to connect in real life by blocking out screens. What would you like to do more of and what's holding you back? We're living in a funny time where a lot of the normal day-to-day activities that we had become accustomed to are on indefinite hold. I was in the middle of fundraising for this 
vision I had for community spaces that were phone free, where you check your phone in at the door. And I love how punk rock it is in counterculture. There's just this multi-million dollar spot that came out yesterday featuring Billie Eilish and I think it's for T-Mobile. And it's all about embracing the young future leaders of today and the power of their phones to change the world. And I think that we're really at a, a crossroads culturally and societally in terms of our addiction to technology. We need some level of balance. That's a long-winded answer, but the short answer is I want to finish my fundraising round and build a beta community space where people have to check their phones at the door. And I want to have it be something that is cool and exciting and creative and inspiring that there's a line out the door and everyone wants to go and they have to check their phones in before doing it. So no one can Instagram about it. No one can Facebook Live about it or TikTok about it. It has to be experienced sans technology. And yeah, I, I guess I, I want to live in a world where we're all a little bit more present. And I think that could in its own way help with that. I, I love that in many ways you're declaring war against technology, yet you leverage technology in so many different ways. And I even go back to like the first time we met in San Francisco and I was helping you uh, put up signs for tech-free zones, which <laughs> were these signs that we illegally set up, <laughs> these fake signs that told people they'd get fined $100 if they were on their phones <laughs> in the park. <laughs> it's almost fighting a losing battle. There's a 100% chance that you're not going to win I yet. I see it as there's never been a more pressing time than now to wage that battle pushing back against the all-encompassing filtration of technology. So to me, it's even if we're going to drown in it, I don't think that means to just accept it. If those signs prompted some critical thinking to someone that maybe never questioned having their phone on them all the time, mission accomplished. Speaking about pushing back against things, I just wanted to play this clip of another project that you did that I really love, which was you going around with your camera, asking people to read out loud the different app permissions that they had on their phones. And it's such an effective way of getting people to rethink and see things from a different perspective. I agreed to let this app change my device's call log, including incoming and outgoing calls data. So why would they want to change my call log? Do you have any idea? I allowed this app to record audio at any time without my confirmation. That's pretty terrible. This may allow the app to share or save my calendar data, regardless of confidentiality or sensitivity. It's offensive. I give this app permission to modify calendar events and send emails without my knowledge. I give the app permission to read my text messages. Read my text messages. Read my text messages. What? I allow this app to modify my contacts. To modify my contacts. Modify my contacts. That's scary. I give this app permission to read my personal profile information. Ugh. Give the app permission to use my precise location. It's not something that I think anybody else needs to know. I agree to let this app automatically turn off airplane mode. Turn off airplane mode. Is that real? That's insane. I give this app permission to read all data about calls on my device. Yeah, that's f***ed up. Why would they do that? That I'm actually kind of surprised about. And these are real? Is that true? Oh my god. Oh, thank you for alerting me to all this really bad shit. 
I feel like I'm giving over my life to an app. For those of you who are curious to check out the actual film, you can go find it by searching for reading app permissions out loud on Google. For this podcast, though, I don't really want to harp too long on the negativity since we're sort of all stuck on screens. But I do want to ask you, Ivan, how do you maintain human connection during a time of pandemic? Yeah, so tips to stay connected in the pandemic without being burnt out by screen time. A couple of random things. One is like letter writing, sending postcards. This is something I do and really believe in. And it's an easy way of letting someone know you care about them. Another one is taking calls without having the camera on. Even during this interview, I'm intentionally turning the camera off so I can really be clear-headed. And I I think we're all, to a degree, a bit vain or at least self-conscious. And so when the camera's on, even if it's 3% of um, our mental energy going towards just being aware of that, I know that for me, it, it exhausts me more. I've been loving walking dates, but just getting outside and walking around has been helpful for me. But I think you're asking more about like, how do you have connections and stay in touch with people while not burning out on technology? Yeah, I think just overall, I'm curious because if all the work that you champion is about creating valuable human connections, how as an individual, as a human being, you live your life in order to foster these connections, whether it's even times pre-pandemic and current pandemic. Because I think that It's one thing to say, hey, guys, being connected and being present is super important. And it's another actually doing it and figuring out what the mechanics of that could actually be when all we know is the lives that we lead every day. I think it's also about having intentional time and not just having broad, aimless, wandering hangouts. There's a place for that. But in terms of setting up calls or Zoom meetings, I think it's really having a clear sense of purpose. I think that being constantly connected cheapens connection. And I think that when there's more space between interactions, we can be more intentional in our connections and we value them more. So it's almost go for deep, condensed time with people that you care about rather than consistent, regular touch points. Is that correct? Quality over quantity, baby. (laughs) Totally. One of the things I've always been really impressed uh, with about you is how organized and disciplined you are at specific aspects of your life. Do you have any tips or tricks or methodologies that you'd like to share? This is in no particular order, but when I reflect on how I'm able to be so organized and methodical, a couple of things that have come up for me are the importance of having one front burner project at a time. And during that time, every other project is on back burner. Being really clear that time is the most valuable resource. And so as cold as it it might seem, not feeling any sense of obligation to say yes about really any social invitation. And it's not to say not, not to do those things, but to just really value our time. I'm also a big believer in having as many meetings and calls as possible only one or two days a week and having the other days be more freeform. I I love structure and I also really thrive on periods of free time and without any sort of like rule that calls and, and meetings can just interrupt the entire week. I have one main way of communication where nothing falls through the cracks and that's email. 
And I try to funnel as much as possible to that one email address. So like someone recently reached out to me on Facebook for a new gig opportunity. And I very quickly just said, hey, what's your email? And I'll follow up with you there. And that ensures to me that I'm not too scattered and I can you know, be really reliable at that one thing. What else? I'm a chronic list maker. So I have a notes app on my computer and it always has a list of things for me to do. For instance, right now it says, send Ben Von Wong audio from last photo project, dialogue or interviews. And so after this and the next day, I will for sure send you some audio. And if I didn't write that down, it wouldn't happen. So that's also a Bible for me. And then just things like meditation, exercise, ways of structuring the day beyond just productivity. Yeah, those are some great ones. I actually fell off the bandwagon for hiring an admin person after COVID got a little serious. I was like, I have more time now. I'm just going to take on building my own systems a little bit better. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly, though, just to like be real, it's a blessing and a curse. I have this uncanny ability. Carla, my girlfriend, teases me. She'll call me the loop closer. And I chronically, I'll lay in bed thinking of small errands or agreements or just things that like are unfinished and they haunt me. I actually have a hard time relaxing to watch a TV show or or something when there's like many loops that aren't closed. And so on one hand, it makes me a really badass person that can get a lot of shit done. It can be really hard for me to drop in and be fully present in the moment. And I think that's where a lot of my curiosity and interest with doing meditation retreats comes from, is forcing myself to take time out from the loop closing part of my brain. That's interesting. What is your greatest fear? I I guess the, the fear oscillates between, am I reaching my full potential? Am I taking my foot off the gas as an excuse? Or is it to like, uh, a healthy response to the phenomenon of like hyperachievement. I guess that would be the the fear is how do you know when you're like ready to coast and not keep like people like us work really hard and the and work life balance isn't even a real conversation because we love what we do and so we get to live that which is a total blessing but it's also a recipe for burnout. And so that's a question I ask myself a lot is like, when am I allowed to take some time off and just like chill and be present and enjoy life and balanced with the world is on fire and we we really need positive messages and inspiration. I, I feel called to that. So I think it's, yeah, how, I'm curious, like how would you answer that specific question? <laughs> Yeah, I've actually had a ton of time to think about that exact question during COVID. So I have some answers that I've arrived at that I feel really comfortable Mm. with. The first is that when we look back in time at all the decisions that we've made, it's really rare that you say, oh, I wish I could have changed that. So we usually think the good and the bad experiences are justified because we are who we are as a result of those experiences. And so if you take that logic and you apply it to the present, it means that any decision that you make right now is probably going to be the right decision anyways. So you can remove all the stress of whether or not you're making the right decision and just do what you feel compelled to do at this moment. Yeah, but I, I, I think that's the right answer. I guess if I'm fully honest, there's some expectation that I've set for myself 
that's before I die, I need to like, just like really go super far and change the world. And as I say it out loud, it's a little embarrassing because it's like ego talking, but I definitely feel this sense of what my job isn't done, even though in this moment, it, it feels right to not just keep pushing. I, I get distracted by zooming out to this like speculative future narrative. Do you have that at all? Yeah, for the first part of your answer, what I'm hearing is that you're just scared that you're never going to reach your true potential. And I think that's something that we all want to do, right? To live life to the fullest. As for the second half, for me, I've been really fascinated by the idea that if you have a system that works for you, you can kind of make time your ally. Because if you improve by 1% every single day for an entire year, you end up 37 times better than you were. But if you get 1% worse every single day, you end up at zero. And so I have just found so much empowerment in this moment in time right now where I could just focus on nurturing a better system so that I can become the person that I want to be. Because ultimately, like, I would have never been able to plan where I was going to be 10 years ago, like today. And similarly, I don't think any one of us can tell us what the world is going to be like in 10 years, let alone the role that we're going to play in it. So you're speaking to like tr trusting the process a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. I'm speaking to nurturing the things that will get you where you want to be. So for me, one of the skills I'm really trying to level up in this moment in time, which is the skill of curiosity. Um, I think curiosity is probably the one skill that if I had a greater abundance of, everything would flow easily. I would work harder because I'd be more curious. I'd read more because I was more curious. I'd process things more because I was more curious. I'd talk to more people because I was more curious. And I think if I did all those things, I would become more knowledgeable, more proficient, more intelligent, come up with better ideas, so on and so forth. So I'm looking at it from a building block perspective. And all of these are things that I can accomplish in the present, non-contingent on anyone's recognition of my efforts. Right. And I think being able to retain control of that is really important because if your success is tied to the validation of someone else, meaning someone else thinks you're worthy of an award or someone else thinks you're worthy of a job, then you're always worried that you, and, and I guess my fear is mediocrity and obsolescence. Yeah. So to be average and to be not, to, to be like basically old and uninspiring <laughs> would be my greatest fear. Mm. Yeah. That's real. I, I could probably have said obsolescence as well. It's the desire to stay relevant in this world where like the metrics keep changing. <laughs> oh man, tell me about it. I have another question that's tied to this idea of failure and it's the flip side. Who would you consider successful when you look out in the world right now? It's a leading question because I think everyone is filled with micro successes and micro failures. I don't think we can look at anyone and say, that person is fully a success because if we were to examine more closely, they would have limitations and shortcomings. I'm being a little bit difficult, but that's my preface. I can talk about someone that I met in the last couple of years that I find really inspiring. There's this musician, Adam Freeland, who is a friend. He's, he's not like, I've, I've known him for two years and we probably hung out a total of like maybe five or six times. But in the times that we've spent together, I've learned a lot and I really respect how he lives his life. So he's someone that lives in Joshua Tree, California on maybe 30 acres of undeveloped land. So totally natural 
at the end of a 30 mile or it takes 30 minutes down a dirt road to get to him. And he's just created this little life on this land. I feel like he's like a pretty world renowned DJ. As far as I can tell, he's like toured the world, had all the success that someone could hope for and has recognized that there's more to what he wants to do with his life than just get paid and chase these like external validating factors. So yeah, he's just like really generous, really committed to making the world a better place through ideological discourse, through working on a variety of creative projects, some music related, some non-music related. I don't know. I guess he's been very generous to me. When I think about successful people, he seems really content and yet hardworking. And I guess specifically, he's chosen a path very different than the average person. And he recently said to me that since living out in the middle of nowhere for, I think it's been like five plus years for him, how he feels more sane, but he has realized that like the world and like society looks more and more insane. And I think that's just a funny, funny thing that can happen. The success and failure question goes really well together because your greatest fear versus what you're actually chasing are often like great indicators Mm. as a barometer for yourself. I want to end on one last question for you. And that is if you had the ears of the entire world and you could say something to them or recommend something to them or invite them to do something, what would that be? Oh my God, that's such a responsibility. (laughs) That's a question I ask other people, Ben, not a question that people ask me. I would say, put down your phone, take three deep breaths and tell yourself that you love yourself and tell someone else that you love them. If I had 30 seconds, I feel like that would be a good use of time. And beyond that, there's so many different things that I I would have to do an analysis of what causes are most pressing at this point in time. But I think that would be like a good, that'd be like my gut response. Thank you so much, man. Um, If people want to follow the work that you're doing and stay up to date with what you do, where should they dive into? All that social media and technology that I was just bashing earlier, people should totally follow me on Instagram, Ivan three underscores cash, or go to Ivan.cash to check out my work. Or you can write or you can write me a letter, P.O. Box two four two one three, Oakland, California, nine four six two three. I'm ready. Amazing. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was gonna say, and if they had a carrier pigeon, where should they send it? So you got your I'm answer. <laughs> cool, this was fun. Alrighty guys, that was the one and only Ivan Cash. And on his website, Ivan.cash, C-A-S-H, he actually has a ton of videos, not just of his work, but of his speaking, where he goes even into more depth and breaks down all of the different concepts that make his work so unique. So go over there and check it out if you have a little bit of spare time. For those of you who just want the summary of this conversation, make sure to go to impacteverywhere.org. There's gonna be graphics as always, along with audiograms and the rest where you can download, share, and spread the word. Next week, we have Marcus Erickson, who is a scientist, a paleontologist, and an ex-Marine, who is single-handedly responsible for creating the research that ended up getting microbeads banned in the United States. He's a co-founder of the Five Gyres Institute, and over the course of 45 minutes, he'll share amazing stories and wisdom around movements and how they happen. I can't wait to share his story with you guys. And in the meantime, stay inspired because impact is everywhere.